so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. Yeah, the less we eat, the less violence is being done and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to Animal Voices, Western Canada's only radio program dedicated to animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM CFRO Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, unceded Coast Salish territories. Today is Friday, June 21st, 2019. I'm your host, Elise Jacobson, and I'm joined here in the studio today by my co-host, Allison Cole. Hi there. Uh, and Connor Crozier. Good afternoon. And our control room operator, Carol Davies McIntosh. Hi there. Today is Indigenous Peoples Day. Our featured guest for today's show is Sierra Tassi Baker, a consultant in sustainable city planning whose work is focused on Indigenous consultation and rights. We are delighted to have her right here in the studio with us. Hi, Sierra. Okay, Lagessa, thank you for having me. Cheers. Uh, Sierra is a member of the Squamish Nation, and she will be speaking with us on why she has chosen a vegan lifestyle and how that aligns with her Indigenous identity. We'll also be discussing how animal rights activists can engage in advocacy efforts for animals while showing respect to indigenous communities and avoiding reinforcing colonial and white supremacist paradigms. That's coming up in just about half an hour, so stay tuned. But first, we'd like to welcome Connor to the Animal Voices team. Hey, Connor. We're glad to have you here. So uh, so people might not know because Connor has never been on the air before at Animal Voices, although you're a recent, uh, you're a recent co-op radio member because guess what? Anyone can make radio. What, what did you have to do to get on, to basically get on the air as you are now? You just, did you just like knock on the door and say, I want to make radio? <laughs> Pretty much. I just sent an email to yeah. um, the, the email address that you'd find on the website. Um, and before I knew it, I was in here doing a couple of training sessions, and here I am. Yeah, you've already taken some of your training that's offered at Co-op Radio if you want to become a radio superstar like myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is my only, well, one of my claims to fame. Um, yeah, so, Connor, I want to learn a little bit more about you and for our listeners. Uh, so <clears throat> you you have a little bit of an accent. <laughs> guessing you're from the UK. I'm that's actually correct. not sure exactly. So where are you from the UK? and what uh, what brings you to Canada? So I'm from a very small town in England called Shrewsbury, which is in the West Midlands, just off the border of Northern Wales. Um, and there's a few things that bring me over to Vancouver. I think the nature and the people, nice. I think, are the most important the things for me. Had um, you had a taste of our people before coming here? Sure, like. and I'm still yet to meet a Canadian I don't like. Aww. <laughs> Aww. Well, just so you know, my dad is from Wales. So oh, yeah, whereabouts? Neighbors, um, Newport. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, yeah. So tell us your vegan journey story. Everyone has one. Everyone's <clears> is different. Uh, you, you as a person across the water found veganism. How, how did that, how was that discovered for you? Sure. So my vegan journey started rather unintentionally on my 21st birthday. Um, I watched a documentary called Samsara, which for anyone who hasn't watched it is an incredible work of art by a documentarian called Robert, sorry, uh, Ron Frick. I think his name is. Um, and it's basically just a series of images that he'd filmed from all over the world. Um, it's not an intentional veganis veganism documentary, um, but there is a, probably a, maybe a six-minute clip that's very powerful and kind of hit me quite deep. It starts off in a chicken factory, and you see baby chicks getting swept up by these like street cleaner machines, mm -hmm. and then it goes to like a slaughterhouse for chickens. Mm -hmm. And I mean, b before this happened, I was brought up a meat and two veg by my parents. Um, I had never even, I don't think, had a vegetarian meal. Wow. Um, and I was eating a lot of chicken at the time. I was at university, so I couldn't afford anything else. Um, so this started hit me quite deep. I was like, "Wow, I'm contributing to this." And then the next thing you see in the documentary is a time lapse of a supermarket, and you see just a, just how many people are contributing to this every right. single day. And I kind of just sat there and thought, "Wow, I can't. I just can't contribute to this anymore. There's too much happening." Um, and I coupled that with a feeling I know I've always had, which is I could never kill an animal. Uh -huh. um, 
So the next day I woke up with a load of chicken in the freezer and knew I couldn't eat it. And from then on, I was vegetarian um, and knew nothing about veganism. This was probably like 2013. Uh -huh. um, mm. It wasn't even a word that I knew. And then through learning about vegetarianism, I started to learn more about veganism. I started to watch you know, the classic documentaries that take you on that journey. Um, and it wasn't until 2016 that I chose to go vegan. Um, and that was me putting it off due to chocolate. Oh, <laughs> it's always the chocolate. Always chocolate. And you know right. what? I I grew up loving dairy chocolate, always like the, the milk chocolate. Sure. I never liked the dark chocolate. But I, I, I will tell you, when I became vegan... It's either dark chocolate or no chocolate. They didn't have... Now we have like coconut milk chocolate yeah, or yeah. rice milk rice, chocolate. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a huge variety. I went to the vegan supply a few weeks ago to buy some chocolates for my dad for Father's Day. I'm like, wow, such a large variety. Which, mm -hmm. one, which one should I choose? And have you heard of the new vegan chocolate Nobo from the UK? No, I haven't. Okay, Because I think they've been around in the UK for a while. And um, I was at the CHFA trade show earlier this year and they were trying to get into the Canadian market and I, I had I gave I gave you one I think Elise possibly and uh, and I had one as well which was the orange one and it's the best chocolate that I've ever tasted in my life yeah. wow. and uh, and they have those at vegan supply right now so I sent that to my dad Great. Um, I know where I'm going after this then yeah yeah <laughs> yeah they've got a lot of cool new, you know every once in a while I pop in there to see to see what what's up in the store and I actually went there with an intention to buy some Father's Day chocolates. And yeah, they've got lots of great new stuff there. So um, so being a vegan from the UK, you said you're starting, it was sort of like 2013. And um, we were speaking with our, our guest um, earlier today, Sierra, who was saying that she went to the UK two years ago and there was nothing to eat. And then last year, it's it suddenly has exploded. Do you want to, to have a little chat about that? Because I want to learn more. <laughs> yeah, I actually studied my master's in sustainable city planning in London at University College London. And it was an amazing program. And through that program, I guess we'll get into my vegan journey later, I, it just became really clear to me that veganism is the way to go, especially for environmental reasons. Cool. And so I tried being vegan and found very little resources wow. and unfortunately had a pretty rocky time with it. <gasps> so kind of bounced back and forth between vegan and vegetarian and yeah. uh, occasionally it just didn't figure it out. And then finally came back home and figured it out and went back to London and suddenly London has this amazing vegan cuisine probably like the best mac and cheese vegan mac and cheese I've ever had wow. and like totally crave whenever I go back to London like all the new food and right. one of the restaurants um, that was purely a meeting, eating restaurant is now my favorite vegan restaurant wow. back in London I don't know if you heard of the diner I haven't no, it's, no. yeah it's great it's yeah. delicious yeah vegan yeah. is quickly becoming a vegan paradise sorry London yeah, is becoming like, a yeah. vegan paradise um, yeah. can you tell us how you've seen that grow because you're you know you're from there i know i've seen i've seen how vancouver has boomed into veganism yes, sure, and absolutely. especially the animal rights movement here as well and yeah. i think you actually have a huge animal rights movement in the uk from what i know i know the um i can't uh, i forget always forget his name but he's the person in the uk who sets up all the save chapters in the uk so to get people active in their towns or their cities in in great britain showing images on big screens to the public about where their meat comes from and I think it's stuff like that that is getting people to go vegan H how has that been for you like seeing how this there's been maybe a cultural shift yeah so when I first went vegetarian um, the only any veggie or vegan options you could usually get in a uh, like a restaurant or anything would be a goat's cheese salad <laughs> there just wasn't vegan options wow um, and then when I went vegan in 2016 it was still really hard to get vegan options oh. um, it was, it was getting better like there was still there was still like the vegan chocolates were coming through and like some places were starting to kind of play with it. Were you like in your small town or no, had sorry, you, you sorry. had moved to London? Yeah, or? no, I'd moved to Leeds. Oh, Leeds I went to university right. in Leeds, right. um, which is just a bit further um, mm -hmm. east than Manchester, so right. it's up in the north. Um, and yeah, the, I mean, Leeds had like a few specific veggie and vegan places. Mm -hmm. um, and then I left to move to Australia for a year and I came back in 20. 
17. Um, and when I came back to this um, vegan paradise wow. that Sarah was talking about, like everywhere had gone vegan. Every chain restaurant, every supermarket, they all had these like incredible vegan sections. Um, now to the point where Sainsbury's, one of the vegan um, supermarkets back home, has just set up a vegan butcher in London. Oh, you're yes, kidding. Um, I've heard about that. Yeah. 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 And the, the thing is, right, these businesses don't necessarily care too much about the ethics, but it's just such good business for them. Yeah. As soon as somewhere that's traditionally non-vegan releases a vegan product. Yeah. There's just like now like millions of people want to yeah. try it. Right? I, I was just reading last night that Tyson Foods, which is the biggest meat supplier in the U.S., maybe for North America, they've just come out with a vegan chicken nugget and they have right. vegan right. burger patties that. now. It's probably in the U.S. because they actually bought shares in the Beyond Meat um, Corporation to learn plant technology right. and then okay. they sold their shares because they don't need them anymore because they're now making their own plant-based products because they're real realizing that even though they're you know they're in the business of ki killing animals to put on people's plates they're realizing that the technology is actually plant-based mm -hmm. that that is what is going to be everyone is going to be wanting sure. in the future and it's it's way more efficient as well yeah i've heard the same yeah. about dairy farmers now there's a lot of dairy yeah. farmers who are yes. continuing their in the uk but too they're also moving yeah. to nut milks as well because yeah because yeah, it's nicer it's to milk right. a nut yeah. than a cow's yeah. boob right, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, others are just what, a bit smaller and tricky yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> So, moving on, I actually wanted to ask you about one thing that I know you've got some uh, knowledge on and what, that we never talk about here on, on the show is the uh, fox hunts in the sure. UK. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what has recently come to play in terms of them being actually banned in the UK? Sure. So, fox hunting is a very traditional and barbaric pastime that the upper echelons of society in the UK have um, partaken in for centuries um, it's typically a bunch of men on horseback um, with a pack of dogs, usually beagles, I believe, mm -hmm. um, that go out into the woods on their big estates and track down foxes. The dogs are trained to sniff, find out, and then completely tear apart these poor foxes. Wow. Um, that was banned by the government in 2004, um, oh. but the ban has effectively just being completely ignored wow um i believe that that's because of the kind of hierarchy of people who are involved in it yeah it's mostly um, wealthy folks right like, for sure right yeah. they're powerful people well who the are royal family the goes on their yearly fox hunt yeah. sure. in december or something like that yeah for sure and they have these legal fox hunts that i use air quotes for um which they claim they're not going out after a fox they're They've trained. They've they've put some bait down for the dogs. They say, oh, gosh. Um, and they're just doing it as like a, a, a more humane way. They say, um, but the dogs are still trained to sniff out a fox. So if the dogs just so happen to go off course and find a fox, then that's they can't control the dogs. Is what they say. Oh boy, um, it's really terrible. I mean, it still happens. Farmers are letting it happen because foxes do have a pretty bad impact on certain farm animals as well mm -hmm. um, and the police can't do much to enforce it because it's private land um, there are fox saboteurs out there who go out to disrupt and film and make sure I read that, that some have been killed the, uh, the, the hunt, hunt hunts, sabs. Hunt yeah. Sabs, yeah, I've actually never heard that. Okay, that's quite a I just read that a day or two ago. I was like, wow, that's right. pretty major. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, it gets pretty violent, um, and then that becomes part of the the activity for everybody involved. Unfortunately. Right. Um, yeah. No, it's 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 pretty terrible out there. It's it's now like 15 years and it's still happening you wow, know gosh, just yeah. when you think they've done something so progressive to ban something like that well maybe we should revisit this in the future to see what's going on these days and we can see if we can interview one of these uh hunt saboteurs yeah or, i think that would what, be great yeah. yeah maybe you can do that interview for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well thanks for for giving us an introduction about yourself and uh, yeah we'll keep moving on with the show because there's some big news that has happened this week with regards to laws being made in canada i mean last week we had reported uh that the banning of cetaceans in captivity has come into law in canada that's bill s203 and uh the nonprofit organization 
Marine Animal Justice has been working really hard on these issues. Now, um, just as of earlier this week on Tuesday evening, the Senate also passed Bill 6, sorry, Bill uh, C-68, which outlaws the trade in shark fin products, and Bill C-84, which outlaws all forms of sexual abuse of animals and tightens up laws against animal fighting. And if you can believe that it was actually in the law that bestiality was allowed in Canada up until now, and that had been something that had been um, had been approached in a bill that was passed a few years ago, but they had left that open. So now animal justice has has um, has basically has uh, cut that. And yeah, so um, so anyways, talking about Bill 68, it now outlaws the trade in shark fin products and Bill C84, which outlaws all forms of sexual abuse in animals. Yeah, I could. I actually couldn't believe that that was still legal either when I heard that they the, just outlawed the it. bestiality. Like, yeah, yeah, that yeah. was still from. If you remember, a few years ago there was uh, there there was that law that was passed, but it still kept that bestiality issue open. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad that animal justice took that upon them, basically to tie up that loose end because mm-hmm. that just shouldn't be there. Absolutely. And when people say that Canada has some of the worst animal welfare laws in the world. It's true, but we are we are gaining some traction now. No more cetaceans allowed in, in Canada. So what are the other countries going to think about that? And now Canada, as of this week, has just become a world leader in shark protection mm-hmm. by banning the cruel trade in shark fins. Now, if you're interested or don't know about the shark fin trade, I would recommend watching two, two films. The first one is Shark Water, and the second one is Shark Water Extinction, which came out last year, and we did an interview with some of the filmmakers of that and it's just um it's so tragic and the news needs to get out there um it's still a large cultural thing in china and in vancouver lower mainland as well where we have a heavy asian population and having shark fin soup at your wedding and the shark fins are very it's a status thing they're very Mm -hmm. very very expensive so now from what i'm hearing it's the older generation that still wants the shark fin soup like in vancouver but the younger generation is starting to decline it and starting to realize that new traditions can be made right so we don't need to be um just cutting the fins off these countless sharks and then they basically get thrown in the water and they die so mm-hmm. it's uh, and you know shark predators they're at the top of the food chain and when the sharks die this is what paul watson says when the sharks die our oceans die mm-hmm. so it's it's a serious issue and now we're going to play for you a short clip featuring um Dalhousie University professor Margaret Robinson. She is a Mi'kmaq scholar and a vegan, and this is an appearance that she made on CBC Radio's Cross Country Checkup. Cree chef Shane Chartrand in Edmonton. Our next caller is a vegan Mi'kmaq scholar, Margaret Robinson in Halifax. She's a member of the Lennox Island First Nation. Gwei, hello, Margaret. Duncan. Uh, the Mi'kmaq traditional diet includes a lot of seafood and meat, uh, but you chose uh, and are choosing vegan food instead. Why? Um, I guess it's kind of weird. Um, well, I was at a period in my life where I was trying to reconnect with my Mi'kmaq culture. Uh, I'd been living in Toronto at that point for about 20 years. Uh, lots of opportunities to connect with Anishinaabe culture, but I was looking for something specifically Mi'kmaq. And what I found were a lot of uh, collections of our oral traditions, our stories. And so I started reading through them. And for me, it was more about what are the values that I see in these stories and how can I live them in a contemporary way in a big city? I mean, my family's lived in an urban environment for about five generations. So we're, uh, I had the fortunate uh, experience of growing up on the land as a young person, but most of my family hasn't. So it wasn't so much about thinking, oh, I should adopt this plant-focused diet. It's thinking I should adopt a Mi'kmaq values-focused diet. Um, And the way that turned out to seem most reasonable based on what I saw in the stories was to uh, not eat meat. Well, explain that to me a little bit, Margaret, because there are a lot of folks who who may say veganism, oh, well, that's a white hipster thing. (laughs) Uh, That's not, you know, and and relating it to traditional indigenous meals, uh, they may not initially connect. So so how does the the vegan diet connect with with your your Mi'kmaq roots? 
Sure. So uh, I started reading our stories, so like Mi'kmaq creation story or stories like uh, Wolverine and his brother. And in those stories, animals are re- relatives with human beings, sort of, you know, we say all my relations, but um, literally in the stories, we become brothers and sisters with animals because the humans are often starving to death. The animals take pity on them and agree to sacrifice themselves so the humans can eat. And so it's based on survival. It's based on subsistence. You're not supposed to kill a whole bunch of animals so you can stock your freezer full. Um, it's presented as only taking what you need. And so when I looked at that, I thought, okay, well, what do I need? And I realized at the time I was living at the corner of Kensington Market in Chinatown, um, based on the resources I had, eating meat wasn't something I needed to do. So if I, if I, I looked at the stories and I thought, okay, well, if the deal with the animals is made because we'll starve to death if we don't have it, then what would be my reasoning for asking animals to sacrifice themselves if I actually don't need it, like just because they taste yummy? It didn't seem very indigenous to just uh, expect them to die so I could have some sort of you know, favorite treats or whatever. So, so what, what kind of reactions did you get from your community when you came back and said, I'm a vegan, I don't eat meat? I mean, engaging in, in Mi'kmaq ceremonial events, for example, uh, what, what kind of, of reaction do people uh, give you when, when, when uh, you say, no, I'm, I'm not going to eat the seafood or, or I'm not going to, to have that tasty venison? Uh, there's some jokes. Uh, the the one about the bad hunter I've heard quite a bit. <laughs> um, there's uh, there's a value about non-interference, though. So um, people who are kind of weird or on the periphery of our culture, uh, as long as you're not really interfering with other people, uh, they don't tend to interfere with you. So uh, if there's a particular food tradition that isn't going to be able to be incorporated into the way I eat. Uh, Sometimes I'll bring a meat-eating friend with me, and they'll eat my share of something if it's something that's supposed to be shared between the whole group. Um, But it it can get a little difficult. Sometimes I've gone to events and just filled up on wild rice and blueberries, which has been nice. But, um, I mean, my family were worried about, you know, are you getting enough nutrition? Are you getting enough protein, particularly? But, when I look at the way I used to eat before going vegan, I mean, it was meat and potatoes and craft dinner on repeat. So it wasn't exactly the healthiest approach before that either. <laughs> so uh, the fact that I'm now actually eating a lot healthier than I used to um, and that it's been going on for 10 years now, they've gotten pretty used to it. I know that there are some uh, people in the indigenous community who are actually advocating for traditional plant harvesting or traditional animal harvesting as a way of, of decolonizing, as a way of, of, of cultural resistance. How much of it is uh, being a vegan is part of that for you? Um, <clears throat> I think for me it's a way to express some of the traditional connections that we would have with animals, with that sort of broad web of life. Uh, and I think those same values can be expressed through subsistence hunting practices. I don't think they can be very well expressed through um, some of the settler practices, for instance, like factory farming. So uh, I worry about what's going to happen to Mi'kmaq food traditions if we become increasingly more like settlers around us. So, you know, I know people who are going to hunt moose, well, they're going to put down tobacco and they're going to do the ceremonies related to that. But they're not going to do those ceremonies if they pick up a roast at the superstore. So the, the danger seems to me not about just what we eat, but why are we eating it and how are we eating it and how is it fitting into our culture? Is it just um, making us similar to the settlers around us or is it helping us maintain our, our specific values as a culture? Uh, traditional plant harvesting, or do you have some favorites that you go out and, and do to gather as an as a indigenous vegan? I don't trust myself to be able to accurately identify, for instance, traditional uh, uh, mushrooms or anything. I've read enough murder mysteries where that goes horribly awry to be nervous, <laughs> but uh, I do buy fiddleheads when they're available, and uh, I'm a big fan of uh, wild rice, so squash, beans, corn, lots of... Uh, broader traditional indigenous foods, but uh, I think it's important to make sure that we preserve the territories where traditional foods grow and where we've cultivated traditional foods, because, uh, you know, the, the more pe- the more the federal government chips away at indigenous 
land base, uh, the less we're going to have access to those things. There are going to be some consultations focusing on the Indigenous community about the the food guide, and, and there's going to be an extra addition for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. What do you think needs to go in that food guide? Well, it would be nice if there was some recognition that uh, while traditional food is available, it, um, it doesn't always taste the way people expect it to, the way they think it's supposed to. It's often been tainted uh, by environmental contaminants like mercury. Um, the emphasis in the food guide is often on making the right choices, and there isn't as much focus on acknowledging that those choices are curtailed and shaped by um, poverty and by having had communities moved away from our traditional territories. Um, so there's some kind of sad irony in the federal government recommending particular food practices that they've actually made very difficult to follow um, because of the policies and practices they've put into place over the last 200 years. Margaret Wolalan, thank you. Oh, thank you. Margaret Robinson is a vegan Mi'kmaq scholar in Halifax. Okay, so vegan events this week. Tonight we have a special vegan food event at Our Town Cafe on Broadway. Kitchen, that's kitch forward slash in, is a zero waste, food waste and vegan pop-up. The menu will be vegan and created from food waste that would have otherwise been needlessly thrown out and the event will create no waste of its own. All dishes will be priced at just $6 with the proceeds going to two different charities including the food waste charity Food Stash. Um, there will also be music at the cafe from two local acts, and I actually know the chef and host of the event and can guarantee that the food will be incredible, and I'll be there tonight, so if you hear this strange British accent, then come say hey. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's Kitchen, you can find the event on Facebook tonight between 6 and 9 at Our Time Cafe, just off Broadway and Main. Um, and then moving on to tomorrow, we've got a lot going on to start the... Start things off. We've got the weekly Vancouver chicken save between seven and nine a.m. Activists will gather at the north northeast corner of Hastings and Salisbury. They will be stopping trucks on their way into the Hallmark Chicken Slaughterhouse to bear witness and say goodbye to the poor chickens en route to slaughter. And then between nine and eleven a.m., the activists will then gather at the northeast corner of Hastings and Commercial for outreach and community building. And if you'd like to get involved, follow the page Vancouver Chicken Save on Facebook, and you can find all the info on there. Then from noon till 4pm tomorrow, there will be a peaceful protest against the annual Yulin Dog Meat Festival outside the Vancouver Art Gallery. The goal is to educate people on what happens during this abhorrent event and help people make the connection between the dogs in Yulin and the animals out here. Personally, I think this is one of the most powerful pro-vegan movements in the Western world as it really opens people's minds about the hypocrisy of our culture. Mm. So that's noon to 4pm outside the Vancouver Art Gallery. You can find the event on Facebook by searching for Stop Yulin 2019 Peaceful Protest. Can I just say something about that the, regarding Yulin is that um, we have featured this horrible issue on the show a few times. So if people want to learn about it, go to animalvoices.org and uh, just type in Yulin and you can find radio shows that we've done about it in the past. I'm, uh, I'm glad to hear that they'll be sort of making the connection between that and, you know, the slaughter of farmed animals over here. That's really good. Yeah, definitely. I think it's easy for a lot of people to be like, oh, how horrible that those people are killing dogs and that sort of thing when there's no relevance relevant differences between those dogs and the you know pigs and cows and chickens and exactly, everything that are slaughtered exactly. over here so. yeah it, it really hits people deep every year yeah um yeah and then moving on to sunday there's a meatless meetup happening at the green mustache in the north van organized through the social platform meetup.com the goal of the event is to bring together like-minded people to share the conversations and experiences over plates of delicious healthy vegan food the event, the event will be held between noon to 1.30pm and there are a few spots left and if you're interested just sign up to meetup.com and search for Meatless Meetup at Green Mustache. And then next Tuesday there's a really fun event coming up, Wine, Swine and Signs. Ooh. The Little Oink, Oink Bank Pig Sanctuary are fundraising in a pretty ingenious way. They're inviting people to the owner's home in Maple Ridge to enjoy an evening of sign making. Wow. All the stencils, paints, and wooden boards will be provided, as will light snacks and the opportunity to meet the pigs. Oh, lovely. The event will just cost $30, and all the proceeds go directly to the sanctuary, and you get to take home your handmade sign. 
And that's from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. on Tuesday in Maple Ridge. You can find the details on Facebook by just searching for Wine, Swine and Signs. Cool. And that's the events for this week. And if you have any animal-related events that you'd like us to plug on the show, just send us an email at radioanimalvoices at gmail.com. Great. Thank you so much for that, Connor. You're listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM CFRO, Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, BC, Canada, unceded Coast Salish territories. My guest today is Sierra Tassi Baker, a member of the Squamish Nation. Sierra has a master's degree in sustainable city planning from University College London and a bachelor's in architecture from UBC. Indigenous design, consultation, and rights were a central focus of her studies in both programs. She was a featured panel speaker at the Women Deliver conference in Vancouver earlier this month. Sierra, welcome to Animal Voices. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me, Galia Slohuchka. Thank you. So first of all, tell me about your vegan journey. Uh, when did you go vegan and what inspired you to do so? Yeah, so I'll start with what inspired me. Um, I My family's always been quite health conscious, but I myself have been pretty terrible in the kitchen for most of my life. And I am really lucky that I have a father who is very culturally connected, Wade Baker. He's a master carver, cultural um, knowledge keeper and oral historian. And um when he was raising me, he'd always take me into the woods and show me, these are the roots that you can eat, these are the, the spruce tips you can eat, and from my dad really started this really beautiful connection with the land, and through that, um, and through potlatches, I was introduced to some of our traditional meals, but also more of the colonial settler era of meals, um, so there's this very healthy way of interacting with the land, and then a bit more unhealthy way of interacting with it, and then through my father, um, He's taught me these amazing oral stories of all the different tribes that I'm descended from. So I'm Kokwakiwakwa, Muskomog, Zaladena, Tlingit, Haida, Musqueam, Squamish. Wow. I think that's all of them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and these, this amazing cultural rich heritage that I grew up around um, really has formatted how I relate to the land. And my mother, we weren't really a meat-heavy family, which is great. Um, my mother liked more of a vegetable based diet but then as I started getting in my annoying teenager years I think I just ate spaghetti exclusively right. it was really bad um, and then getting really involved in um, sustainability I went to my undergrad in sustainable architecture and landscape architecture at UBC um, we had a course on sustainability obviously um, yeah. it's one of the subjects and uh, our professor challenged us to pick one environmental action to do for the rest of the month or the rest of the course so about three months so i chose zero waste and i ironically became vegan automatically wow. um so for three months i was also um managed to buy locally because at ubc it was also the summer so it's quite easy um so buying local farm foods and from the farm up there as well as um trying to find i tried to find meat but everything's wrapped in plastic and right, okay. everything's yeah covered in plastic that's unhealthy um so i automatically was just super healthy for three months begrudgingly like i did honestly try to find like salmon or something that wasn't wrapped in plastic um so that was my first interaction with being vegan um and also being zero waste so i really enjoyed um i actually really enjoyed it that life i felt really good i really enjoyed knowing exactly where my food came from and really enjoyed not choosing plastic um but it was difficult to sustain but I think there's ways definitely to sustain it but it was a great introduction and then when I went and took my master's in sustainability in London it was a program that was heavily focused on policy combined with design so looking at worldwide policies and how that applies to city building and I, I just know too much now like I know what's going on in the ocean I know what pollutants are out there I know about microplastics and bioaccumulation and um just all this awful pollutants that are getting into our food systems and how our food systems are adding to that and eventually it just became like massively hypocritical not just your regular hypocritical so um to to even look at meat in a way that i could look at it 
even like from a non-ethical standpoint you're like if I eat this I know what's in this and it's not good for me um so I tried to go vegan whilst I was in London and I did it mainly for environmental reasons and I like I said I'm not necessarily the best in the kitchen so I didn't really think it through properly Mm -hmm. and I didn't realize there was this larger health narrative that I could have gone to about it because I was so immersed in the environmental aspect of it so it was more just cutting out things as opposed to realizing I needed to you know add in my what I needed for protein and B12 and and my B vitamins and all the ancestral nutrients I wasn't really thinking about it so I was more of a bad vegan for like the better part of a year and um and yeah I unfortunately ended up fainting on the tube twice and just it was just really stressful um but my partner my boyfriend we were long distance is kind of a hobby chef and also an avid vegan and he wanted to start that journey with me again so we kind of pre-planned and he said when I when I get back he's going to teach me how to cook and how to and make sure the nutrients are right and so when I got back from London after like struggling with it um my so October 10th 2017 is when I got back and then I was officially vegan from then on and my boyfriend has been really really helpful and like reacquainting me with the kitchen and how to properly feed myself and I've actually been anemic for most of my life and I'm also allergic to dairy which are both very indigenous in normal indigenous issues and ironically my anemia got significantly better um, after going vegan mainly because I was thinking about my nutrition properly and being smarter about what I'm putting in my body and um, obviously with the dairy that's been great (laughs) just cutting that out completely has been huge for me Um, I used to get pretty bad mood swings and now I don't so that's been really helpful for me Um, but we were talking earlier and I definitely gained weight because we're (laughs) 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 Um, I was like oh I'm going to be vegan so healthy it's going to be great Um, but but yeah just eating too many processed meats still Um, so trying to incorporate that zero waste back into our now vegan is again a struggle but yeah hopefully that'll push us towards more healthy veggies and stuff like that and to clarify for listeners for by processed meats you mean like veggie meats yes i do (laughs) 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 yeah (laughs) vegan processed stuff like really good vegan sausages and which are also wrapped in plastic so that's a fun one there's it's hard to resist there's so many of them now yeah i mean i think it's great you know more the more variety the better but yeah you got to be balanced about it absolutely Mm -hmm. um yeah well that's that's amazing that's really powerful um do you see your veganism as being connected to your coast Salish identity in any way or is it like something separate how do you sort of relate the two so I think as an indigenous person everything I do is part of my indigenous worldview and being Coast Salish and knowing our oral histories and acting according to our philosophies um yes absolutely um I think we heard a bit from Margaret Robinson earlier on the radio and I've been looking into her work and I'm really inspired by the work, the academic work that she's put into mm-hmm. that narrative and I highly recommend checking out more of what she has to say on it Yes, because um, I'm just kind of starting my journey and understanding really the, the details of how my indigeneity relates to my veganism. But for me... Our culture in many of our legends teaches us how to relate to food, how to relate to animals, how to relate to the environment. And the main theme is balance. Um, the main theme is ensuring that there's always a balance with those around you, the environment around you, and your animal brothers and sisters. And Margaret was also mentioning that in our culture, a lot, like all, of, most of our legends are about animals and giving animals personhood and giving animals a voice, giving them autonomy. Yeah and learning from their lessons that they have to teach us and making them highly valued characters in our society. So when you think of it that way, animals have autonomy. They have the right to give consent or not give consent Mm -hmm. in our cultural teachings. And if things are out of balance, you have to restore balance. And actually our family's crest is a thunderbird um, taking a sea seal from the ocean. And this legend is very long, so I'm not going to go fully into it, but essentially the sea seal was eating all of the killer whales, which is the apex predator here, and throwing the entire ecosystem out of balance. And then our people went and asked Thunderbird for his help in this issue. And then through realizing that the reason why this tragedy was happening to their people was because they weren't feeding their elders, they weren't relating to the land imbalance um, through their personal actions of not being in harmony with 
their teachings is why the sea seal had come and started um, imbalancing the environment around them and creating this famine. So eventually they realized what was happening and went and apologized to Thunderbird. And Thunderbird put them through uh, many tasks to ensure that they restored balance in themselves and therefore the environment. And then Thunderbird went and took the seal out of the ocean and stopped this from happening, um, which I think is strangely relevant today with um, what's happening with you know the oil tanker bans and right. um, our killer whales being under threat from many different environmental reasons. Yes. So they're all quite connected. Yeah. So I think Margaret's really great about connecting our legends and storytelling and philosophy to how to relate to animals and the creatures around us. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. That's beautiful. Um, so as we mentioned earlier, you have degrees in sustainable city planning and architecture with a focus on indigenous consultation and design. Can you tell us a little bit about what this entails? Absolutely. It entails a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I help consult with museums, universities, municipalities, organizations on essentially decolonizing many aspects of, of their structure and infrastructure as well as helping with cultural education and really ensuring that the conversation is centered in an indigenous worldview because a lot of these conversations are out of context. Unfortunately, a lot of people who've immigrated to Canada don't understand the full context of the issues at hand. Mm -hmm. So I, what I really try and do is just set the context and make sure that people understand the real history of this area and really trying to work on decolonizing history as well as how we have these conversations. Because I think some people approach conversations around environment and sustainability and uh, city planning without really realizing that Indigenous people have a lot of solutions already and aren't really consulting us about solutions that we've been developing over 15,000 years of living in this exact area that we're having this radio interview on. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Um, So what are some ways in which vegan and Indigenous values can be used to inform and guide city planning? Uh, Everything. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So the Indigenous veganism aspect in and of itself is a complicated conversation. Um, I personally really enjoy eating plant-based and and how that, I see that as part of my ability to try and rebalance um, the imbalance that has been caused by a colonial understanding of nutrition and being able to provide. And I really see my indigeneity influencing these ideas around what it means to be vegan as one aspect Mm -hmm. and the other aspect is we're still reclaiming our culture and a lot of reclaiming our culture is based in our material culture and a lot of reclaiming our culture is rooted in little hunting unfortunately or not unfortunately to a lot of people who that's really helpful to reclaim their culture with and is really rooted in being able to utilize um, different animals and species from from our area but ideally in respectful ways and for example right now I'm wearing two eagle feathers in my hair but those were collected and um, they've been passed down through my family and the cedar hat I'm wearing I have abalone um, are all gifted and passed down through my family Mm -hmm. And my regalia often has um, abalone shells or uh, mother pearl shells or all these different aspects that connect us to the land and our larger philosophy. So it's really hard to have these conversations and not ignore the fact that we're still reclaiming our culture. Right. And I think Margaret mentioned in one of her talks that it's really difficult. There's a barrier to if somebody does want to become an indigenous vegan of if we're not using our land because the colonial government is essentially doing everything in its power to ignore our land title and right if if we're not seen as using our land in a air quote traditional way mm-hmm. or a stereotypically traditional way then we're seen as not having title to it right. so there's this barrier of if we're not acting indigenous or exerting our title and right then we lose that land or lose access to our own lands which is really unfortunate really stressful because it's like you're not going to every single day always be out hunting a lot of what we we supplemented with a lot of different vegetables we supplemented with a lot of different aspects of our land and territories and our territories are often so huge that you're not always in the woods hunting 
constantly you're on the you're on the shore you're um in different aspects and areas of of where you're collecting your materials from right and a lot of what it takes to create regalia is this really nuanced understanding of the land which results in something called traditional ecological knowledge Mm -hmm. and by us being able to have title in our lands and be able to reclaim our culture in our lands we're also collecting and reaffirming traditional ecological knowledge which is highly valuable in conversations around how to address climate change and how to address environmental issues mm-hmm. and these are all really complex conversations and sometimes i feel like some people we're not we're almost not fully equipped to even have those complex com- complex conversations yet yeah because some people don't really truly understand the historical context as well as the current um, traumatic context of what's happening right now. And then trying to have these conversations around, oh, indigenous people shouldn't be hunting or shouldn't be, mm-hmm. um, and not really totally understanding all the barriers around it. Um, so yeah, highly complex yeah, topic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, actually what you were just talking about sort of leads me into my next question. I wanted to ask you about something that's kind of been on my mind for a while. Um, as I'm sure you've noticed, there is often tension between animal rights groups and indigenous communities. I think it can reasonably said that be said that the mainstream animal rights movement does not have a great track record when it comes to treating indigenous people with respect. Um, so in your view, what are some ways in which animal activists excuse me, animal activists can advocate for animals in a way that's more respectful to indigenous communities and that avoids reinforcing colonial and white supremacist paradigms? Ooh, that's so big. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there, well, there's so many entry points into this conversation. Um, I guess for me, because in my uh, master's dissertation, I really focused on studying the history of colonial thought. And I went all the way back to, I think, 1400 AD, around the time of um, the Vatican, and then eventually the Papal Bulls. And there's, I guess we're going to have a mini history lesson, just yeah, to set some serious crazy. context here. Um, we'll get we'll get to the answering of the question in a second, I promise. Um, so it a long time ago, which wasn't that long ago, uh, the Vatican um, put these three papal bulls through, which is Doom de Versace, Intercatera, and Romanus Pontifex, which allowed for the um, essentially enslavement and genocide of Africa. And then these were inspired by the Summa Theologica by St. Thomas Aquinas, and in that he allowed for the murder of people who weren't Christian, so pagans, or anybody with nature-based beliefs. Uh Um, Actually, I'm also part Hungarian, and we were also negatively affected because we we had nature-based beliefs as well. Um, But then this ideology came over into North America, and actually the Summa Theologica and essentially what's called the Framework of Dominion was actually inducted into canon law in Canada. Um, So we have this law system that's literally built on the disrespect of people mm-hmm. and we're, we're essentially and we were um, often in propaganda associated with animals and we're treated as animals and as we all are finding out in a colonial capitalist infrastructure the way that animals are treated is really unethical mm-hmm. and we've felt that and unfortunately as um, was mentioned with the MMIWG report uh, that came out two weeks ago, uh, Canadian genocide is still ongoing. So, all right, heavy stuff. Um, (laughs) And this colonial framework, or something called the Framework of Dominion, as the United Nations mentioned, um, really makes the conversation difficult to have, Mm -hmm. especially if you don't understand the how the basis of our laws how the basis of our infrastructure is potentially affecting how you yourself are actually interacting with the issues Mm -hmm. so the first step is decolonizing um this concept of trying to look inward and see how internalized colonialism is affecting your actions or your thoughts around the issue and which I think is honestly great because a lot of colonial attitudes are really toxic, um, really violent, um, really harmful to the human condition as a whole. And by recentering in this indigenous worldview and recentering the land that you're on and recentering in this philosophy of balance, I think a lot of lessons can 
come from that but that's a lot of internal work so for me i would really appreciate if vegan activists who are taking issue with what indigenous people are are doing to hopefully reclaim their culture and hopefully reclaim these natural laws that will hopefully work to find solutions for climate change and a lot of these larger or not necessarily larger but these grand issues um to do the internal work before reaching out to an indigenous person either violently or friendly and really really do the internal work and investigate why they're so angry and upset by an indigenous person in their traditional lands that they've probably lived in for well for example my family has lived in vancouver for over 809 generations that's what 15 over fifteen thousand years probably longer definitely longer yeah and (laughs) and we have legends from my specific family of how we survived the great flood wow like and that's not normal normal air quotes to um somebody who isn't connected to their history and we're a people that are incredibly connected to our history and without this understanding of history or generational time as i like to call it it's really hard to have a conversation that doesn't sound disrespectful Mm -hmm. because you have um actually somebody asked me this question because they said sierra like i really need some help with i'm really conflicted i was at this vegan rally outside the vancouver art gallery and there was a native man selling um, leather work mm-hmm. beside it. <laughs> and eventually they kind of all turned around and started getting really violent towards him and yelling at him. Oh, and I was like, wow. And that was my first realization that this was an issue that right. is, is happening here as well as across Canada. And um, again, my answer was the same is just please, please do the internal work. Please do the history and education work yeah. and understand that it's not an individual that you really need to be angry at, especially an indigenous person. We're doing our best with um, the colonial oppression, right. essentially, um, to to reclaim this idea of what it means to be in balance with nature. Mm-hmm. And yes, we, we will be using animal products, and or not products is a terrible word. Um, <laughs> it's a very colonial word, sorry. Um, but yeah, we, we will be trying to practice our culture mm-hmm. as much as we can, and living in the lands that we've lived in for thousands and thousands of years i personally don't think that means we have the right to an animal's life mm-hmm. um but that the complexity of it like i wouldn't want my opinion of that to affect somebody learning about their culture right. for me it's like the priority is us reclaiming our culture and then i think once we're in a comfortable place with that we can have those conversations because our culture is transformation our culture is resilient and i think we're resilient enough to eventually transform and eventually maybe we can find a place where we're not using animals however that conversation is years and years away and for me the first step is that internal work and that internal education and decolonization work absolutely yeah those are great points um yeah we just have a couple minutes left but i wanted to ask you also um how do you think that we can find common ground with one another you know i'm I'm speaking about um indigenous communities and sort of the broader animal rights movement and uh and work in coalition to meet our shared goals i again history lesson Um, (laughs) um so so like I was saying, we've, we've lived here for so long, and through oral history, we've kept a very long record of our people. But if you think about it in the sense of we have over 15,000 years of unbroken research into the human condition, mm-hmm. um, we have a lot of wisdom to share about the experience of being human. And a lot of our cultural intellectual property is surrounded and protected by respect however a lot of those lessons are for everyone and people forget that indigenous people weren't kind of stuck in a small area the entire time for that long like we used to trade up and down the coast all the way to mayan territory across canada um east coast to west coast and we even had ocean going canoes and we're often trading with hawaii we even have oral history legends of trading with china um otter furs for their velvet I'm not quite sure the timeline, but I'm really interested looking more into that, yeah. as well as the story of Japan, wow. <laughs> um, Japanese presence. And we, we forget that our culture encompasses being able to communicate with hundreds of different cultures 
all the time because we had a trading and gifting society. So in our culture, it's inherent to be able to know how to talk to somebody who doesn't agree with you. Mm -hmm. It's inherent in our culture to talk to somebody who doesn't speak the same language as you. It's inherent in our culture to be able to host people that you've never met before, even in terms of thousands of years and meeting these new cultures and people. And our culture really has this wisdom of what it means to talk to somebody that you don't know and still treat them with respect because you do know that in many ways we're more connected than we realize. And when you have history that's so old, you do remember how you're related. (laughs) And I think we all forget how related we actually are. And... I think that's all I can really say on that. But Well, yeah. thank you so much. Unfortunately, I wish we could continue this conversation. We're out of time. Um, thank you so much. I've been speaking with Sierra Tassie Baker of the Squamish Nation. Um, thank you very, very much for being here with us and for your hospitality, um, having us on your traditional land to have these conversations. It's been yeah. wonderful. Um, oh, and we wanted to... Um, quickly announce you're doing a performance tonight, correct? Yes. Um, so if ever, anyone is interested in some indigenous futurism and performance, um, there's an uh, event going on tonight called Renaissance Indigenous Futurism and Culture, hosted by Drag Thing Bo Dip at the Clubhouse at 238 First Avenue. It'll be DJ by DJ Kota. Doors are at 8. Performances are at 9. $10 to $15 sliding scale. Please come through. It's Indigenous People's Day, and there's some really phenomenal Indigenous artists that will be there tonight, such as Butterflies and Spirit, Takaya Blaney, CM, Paul Willie, and more. So definitely don't miss this opportunity to see some of the best performances, especially from Indigenous contemporary artists this evening. Sounds amazing. Thank you so much, Sierra. You've been listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, BC, Canada, unceded Coast Salish territories. Join us next Friday, June 28th at noon. Next week's show will feature interviews with members of Nation Rising and with frog conservationist and advocate Matt Ellerbeck. We here at Animal Voices want to connect with you online. Visit our website, animalvoices.org, where you can stream past shows and download them as podcasts. You can also see our show blog there with detailed links and subscribe to us on iTunes. Stay in touch with us on Facebook at Animal Voices Vancouver and on Twitter at Animal Voices YVR. And I just wanted to say as well, am I on the air? Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, we have Instagram now. That's right. <laughs> have, That's right. I forgot. That. We have Instagram. And not only that, but we've been Facebook living this whole interview today. Yes. So say hello Hi, to Facebook. the Facebookers. Yeah. And for people who didn't get a chance to see that, it will be posted permanently on our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver. Cool. Allison, what's the Instagram handle? At Animal Voices Vancouver. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> and now we'll leave you with the song. This is the Red Shadow Singers, an Ojibwe traditional singing group from Manitoba with Eagle Song. Stay tuned for Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Thank you for listening to Animal Voices today and remember to be kind to the animals.